You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. I am excited to keep going through the book of Daniel together. And in this passage particularly, I'm excited because we are meditating on a reality or an attribute of God that we often forget about and neglect, but is extremely important for our Christian living, our Christian life, and it's this. We are today meditating on the power of God. We forget about it, but we need it, and it makes all the difference in our life and in our perseverance. And so I want to talk about the nature of God's power today. I want to talk about... um, the guarantee of God's power, and the partnership with God's power, nature of God's power. What is it? What do we mean by this? What do we mean by God's power? The guarantee of God's power. How do we know that we have it, that we will be given it and receive it, and then how do we partner with God's power and what he's doing in the world? So those are our points today. Those are what we're covering. Before we begin, let's jump. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come to you today, and we ask that you be with us. Lord, we want to receive all the things that you intend for us to receive so that we might live lives that are durable and bold, yet at the same time humble and selfless. God, make us into exiles, these remarkable kinds of people who are held and anchored by you and the hope that we have in you. But God, we can't do what you're asking us to do apart from your power. So I pray, Lord, that you give us a vision for how incredible you are and what you can do through us and in us. God, I pray that you'd give us a longing to no longer live on our own strength and in our own wisdom, trusting ourselves. I pray that you would cause us to contemplate and think about how much we're coasting in our lives, just living in the status quo, being busy and working and being married and having kids and all these other sorts of things, Lord, that become the center of our lives far too often. Lord, you must be the center of our lives. Apart from you, we can do nothing. I pray that you would empower us, Lord, by your Spirit, through your truth, so we can be exiles that are faithful and remarkable. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, God's power. What is that? The nature of God's power. So first, what I want to do is ask this question. What does it do? Like, what is the activity of God's power? What do I mean by this? How does this work its way out in reality? So to answer that question in this passage, I want you to notice the display of God's power through these angels. Now, you know, angels are messengers of God sent from his presence to serve him and do his bidding. They're heavenly beings. So they are um, um, empowered by God. It's almost as if since they're in the presence of God and sent on behalf of God himself, God's power is transmitted through them. And that's what we see in in this passage here today. So what happens first is Daniel meets this angel in verses 5 and 6. And look what happens after this interaction he has with this first angel in verses 7 through 9. It says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me. They did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them. 
And they fled to hide themselves. So Daniel's the only one who's seeing this angel and seeing this vision. But the men who are with him somehow are picking up on something powerful. Something threatening is in the atmosphere. And they flee and they hide. And he says this, So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me, he says. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So Daniel's entourage, they flee, they hide, they tremble. Daniel is drained of all of his energy, all of his vibrancy, so much so that he just passes out and falls on his face to the ground. Then in verse 10, he writes, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And then in verse 11, it says that he stands up trembling when these angels cause him to stand up, but he stands up trembling. And then, okay, we keep on going these interactions with that he's having with these angels. In verse 15, it says he couldn't even speak. He was mute. He couldn't get words out of his mouth and he needed the angel to touch his lips so he could speak. And when he does, he says this, Verses 16 and 17. Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. So Daniel is utterly zapped. He has nothing left in him and he takes great lengths. Like, does not waste details to show us just how overwhelmed he is in this experience that he is having. But then we read this, 18 and 19. What happens next? It says again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh man, greatly love, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak for you have now strengthened me. So you see what's happening here throughout these interactions. He, is, he goes from 100 to zero, then back up to 100. This, the power of God is so real, surging out of God's presence through these angelic beings that he is drained and then revitalized. He is killed and then resurrected. He is brought to nothing and then built back up. This is what God's power does. God's power transforms. God's power revitalizes. So this means this. means this. God, now I just want to meditate on this together, okay? I want to invite you to meditate with me on this. God's power can break addiction. God's power can break sin patterns. God's power can break generational cycles of sin and addiction and abuse and violence and corruption. God can do whatever he wishes in the snap of a finger. He can transform just like that. He does. And I've seen it happen. That's very possible. But I'll tell you this. I just want to meditate on this. Like, how does God's power, his ability to transform, actually work its way and look like in our Christian experience? That's what I want to talk about now. Okay, here's how it goes. When you first get saved, when you first convert and give your life to Jesus, this radical transformation does take place. I like to compare it to to the allies on D-Day when they invade the beaches of Normandy. When they finally take that outpost from the Germans... 
It's, the war is all but over at that point. That was a huge shift towards victory for the Allies. And of course, there's pockets of German forces throughout the territories, but everybody knows that all in time, it's all going to be taken care of and the war is all but over. That's what happens when we come to faith in Jesus. This huge shift takes place. His power is applied to us in such a way where we, we drastically change even in that moment of conversion. New desires are given to us. New curiosities are put into our minds and in our hearts. This huge shift takes place where a lot of ground is covered in our hearts, even in that one singular moment. And there's little pockets, okay, here and there in our heart that New Testament calls that the flesh. There's categories of our lives that still are not yet submitted to the power of God, still have not yet been transformed by Him because we're resisting. But when we convert, God's power is applied, and this dramatic shift does take place. But then there's the rest of life. And then there's the rest of what we call sanctification. And here's what we realize in that, that God's transformation that he brings, that takes time. And that is slow. And it is deliberative. It's intentional. It's not a snap of a finger. It's not just this this shift that takes place right in a moment. The rest of the Christian life, as we have those categories of our heart that are not yet submitted to Jesus, his power has not been applied there yet, that takes time for victory to occur in those areas of life. The New Testament says it like this, we are transformed one degree of glory at a time. It's slow. It's slow. When we're raised in glory, like when we are, when we see Jesus face to face one day, all sin, all indwelling sin in us will be obliterated. It'll be completely gone. But for now, it's a slow process. That's, that's the reality of it. Uh, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, uh, I don't know why he, he decides to write on it, but he says, how is it that a Christian person, he, he gives a woman, for example, is just really mean and unkind. And yet here's an unbelieving person who is kind. He says, how is that possible? How is it possible for a Christian to be so clearly unkind and in the wrong, and yet for this person to seem so much better and so much more put together, who's not even Christian at all? How is that? And he says basically this, that every single person here, okay, every single one of us have different strongholds in our life had different areas where we're not letting go and we're resisting God that we hold really dear to ourselves because we think those things will make us happy. So transformation looks different for every single person. In one area, for one person, they can give that thing up really easily. But in another area, that might be deep, 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 deep down in their heart that they're not letting go of. So why does, why does, why does God do it this way? Slowly over time as a process. Here's why. Here's why, here's why it's a process. It's so that we never get over the fact that we need Jesus. Because if God, I think, just eliminated that thing in a moment, we'd replace it with something else right away. And so here's what God does. By his grace and in his genius, he sort of woos us and draws us along, and he excavates those layers of our heart slowly, unearths those idols slowly, shows us, reveals our sin slowly to us, and we cling to Jesus, and we need Jesus as he's doing that. And here's what happens. As we cling to him and need him and are desperate for him, 
the sweetness of his fellowship and the greatness of his power and uh, the attraction of Jesus, how much better he is than the sin that we're settling for, as those things become more, become more and more real, we don't replace with other things just like counterfeit idols, counterfeit gods. The slow process ensures the fact that we replace those idols with Jesus. You know why else it's slow and it's gradual? It's that we remain humble. It's that we remain desperate. It's that if there is any success in our life, any growth in our life, any transformation in our life, we know that that certainly was not because of me. All glory goes to God. So it's slow and it's gradual and it's purposeful. There's a reason for it. It's so that the transformation sticks. So it stays. So it's not just um, a good week or a quick fix, but it's actually a deep transformative work that's occurring in our lives by God's power. But let me tell you how this is going to happen, okay? God uses the thing that is destroying you to liberate you. That's typically how this is going to happen. Let me, let me say this. No one makes decisions logically. No one in here comes to a conclusion about anything in life by mere logic. In fact, it's primarily emotional. We make decisions primarily with our emotions. So therefore, we only experience deep spiritual change when we become convinced in our own lived experience at a deeply emotional level that the thing that we're consumed by and addicted to and keep going back to is actually killing us and robbing us. And when we get to that point of misery, where we're exhausted in this pattern and in this cycle of hollowness and regret and emptiness, then when we come to our senses, we realize that Jesus is so much better. And we choose him more frequently pass up sin more frequently because now we have a new power in us in that shift, a new desire that God has put there, but he's done so by persuading us of the emptiness of the thing that we've been running to all along in comparison to the sweetness and the the life that is found in the fellowship with Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying here? Does this make sense? God uses the thing that should have destroyed you to save you. That's how transformation takes place. That's how his power is released to make us new. Remember how Daniel went from 100 to zero to 100 again? That happens to us season by season, moment by moment, day by day. We are killed. We are slain. We come to our senses. God raises us up by his power. That's how he sets us free. His power transforms us and sets us free. Do you know what freedom is? Freedom is being able to say no without regret to the things that you used to settle for because the life that you have found in Jesus is so much better. That's freedom. That's what God's power does to us. He releases us. By letting us dive deep into those cycles and that sin and come up empty then we're ready to receive what he has for us. That's God's power. That's how it works. That's how it works its way through the Christian life. Here's my question now. Who is this for? This power that God has, this incredible resource, who does he reserve it for? 
Look, look, look with me at one, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it. It says this. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. The word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, listen here, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. So I'm going to pack some things here that are important historically. The first question I want to ask you is why would Daniel mourn and fast for three weeks? Why is he in this place of just um, misery and sorrow? What we find out, especially just to add to this, is that this is, it says in the first month, which in the Jewish calendar, we, the original readers would know this, we kind of miss it, but in the Jewish calendar, this fast, he, he, he's fasting, eating no delicacies, nothing like that. Uh, this is happening during Passover feast and during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which are these major Jewish celebrations with food, <clears throat> partying, and hope. They're supposed to be happy, yet Daniel doesn't participate. Why? <clears throat> Why would he not participate in these feasts of hope? And the key here is the first verse where it says that this is happening, all this is happening during the third year of the, of the reign of Cyrus. Hey, Ben, could you get me some water? I got a little tickle. Um, in, the first, in the first verse, it says that there is, this is all happening in the third year of the reign of Cyrus. So here's, here's what's happening historically. Stay with me here, all right? In the first year of Cyrus, 538 BC, he decrees that all exiles, all, all Jewish people, can now return to Jerusalem. He did that in 538 BC. That was a response, an answer to Daniel's prayer in the last chapter, in chapter, in chapter 9. He prayed, God, when will this exile end? Shortly after, King Cyrus makes the decree, it's time to go back. That happened in 538. By the fall of that same year, the altar was rebuilt in Jerusalem. And by the spring of the following year, 537 BC, the foundation of the temple was laid. But then we find out Shortly after all of that, in the third year of King Cyrus, we know historically from the book of Ezra that all the work in the temple and in Jerusalem came to a crashing halt. It was stopped because they were facing opposition. So that's where Daniel's at. Thank you, Ben. You're the man. You're an angel sent from God. So, so you see what's happening here. Behind the scenes, behind these words, Daniel is fasting and mourning because three years earlier, man, so much reason to rejoice. We're being released from exile. But now three years later, what's going on, God? It's all come to a crashing halt. It's all been, been stopped by this, this opposition. And so that's where Daniel's at. He's mourning and grieving because he's distraught over his people and the hopelessness of the situation, and add to it this. All, the majority of the exiles have gone back. Daniel stayed. Daniel stayed in Persia while all his friends, his community, most of them, have gone now. He's alone. We don't know why he stayed. Perhaps he thought his last years would be best serving Persia. Perhaps he wasn't permitted to leave. Perhaps he felt that it would be best to advocate for his people using his position in the government. Either way, Daniel will die in exile away from his home. This is at the end of his life. 
And so it's the circumstances of disappointment, of, of wondering what's going on here, God. This wasn't the plan, I thought. Why is this all coming to a crashing halt? And I'm alone. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life never seeing my homeland again. I haven't seen since I was 15 years old. So who is God's power for? Daniel's the one who experiences these things from this, these angelic interactions. Who is God's power reserved for? It is reserved for the weak. God's power is for the weak. So listen here. Are you stuck in sin? Are you weary? Are you discouraged? Are you convinced that you're lost? Are you aware that you're guilty? If any of those things are occurring in your heart, I have really good news for you. Don't hang your head because God's power is reserved for you. God's power is reserved for people such as these, the low, the hurting, the sinful. That's who God loves to give his power to. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about this. How would we, if we had this kind of incredible, limitless power, who would we invest that power in? I would not invest it in the low. (laughs) I would not invest it in the weak. I'd give it to the people who are good investment, who, who who seem to do well. I would get behind them. God doesn't. God loves to give his power to the least of these. It says in Psalm 34, God draws near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Think about the story of the Bible. It's a story. The main characters of the Bible are weak, wounded sinners, (laughs) Uh, people who are extremely limited and weak. God chooses who to make a great nation of. Abraham, whose name means a father of a great nation, yet him and his wife, no children. Old in age, no children, yet that's who God chooses to make a great nation of. And then God chooses not the firstborn to continue the line of Abraham, but the secondborn. God chooses who to be king, not the first seven sons, but the young shepherd boy. Who does God choose to have the Christ, a young virgin from Nazareth. Who does God choose to change the world? Fishermen. Think about the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, classic passage. Blessed are the who? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. The kingdom of God and his power is reserved for those who are weak and low and destitute. And although God's power is exclusively reserved for the weak, it is limitless in its resource. He makes the great nation out of Abraham and Sarah. He makes David, the shepherd boy, a great king. He changes the world through those fishermen. So I hope you are weak. I hope you have come to grips with the fact that you are in need. And so if you're here, okay, I prayed this because this has been on my mind all week as I'm meditating on this passage. It is so natural and easy for us to get busy and then start operating in our own wisdom 
in our own strength, according to our own agenda, for our own purposes, and we're living literally by our own power in Christianity. <laughs> our faith in God just becomes this safe, docile little compartment of our life, and it's powerless. It's powerless because we have not brought it into the center of our lives and constructed our lives around it because we're just coasting and we're living in the status quo. We are not aware of the fact that we are beggars needing the bread of life, that we are sojourners and wanderers who need the living water. That's who we are. And so if we're not there, we're not going to experience the power of God and everything that He as an infinite source wants to do in us. So God gives His power for the weak. Why? Why the weak and not the strong? Why the weak and not the proud? Here's why. Because the weak do not confuse God's power with their own. The weak know that any help they receive is to God's credit, and that glorifies God and that makes God look really great. That makes God very obviously visible when weak people, when hurt people, when wounded people are strong in him. That makes God look really good. But also, I want you to think about this. Why this just makes sense? I want to appeal to you uh, and, and incentivize you to be weak. Here is why it's so great to be weak and receive God's power. Because of Think about what this produces in a person. Let's meditate on this together. What does this produce in a person who is weak and receives God's power? Someone who receives God's power knows at the same time they are loved, they are considered by the God of the cosmos, yet they are unworthy. That creates a person who is confident, Bold, radical, yet humble and selfless and approachable. They're blessed and they're a blessing. God wants to create that kind of people. That's what he wants to make you. That's what he wants to make us for his glory, for our good. God wants to unleash his power in the weak for his glory his transformative power. So, the nature of God's power, who, what it does and who it's for. But now, I want to now uh, show you the guarantee of God's power. How can we know? Do we have certainty that everything I'm saying here isn't just this exaggerated, wishful thinking, this pep rally thing that, hey, we're going to make it just fine? Like, do we have bedrock certified guarantee that this is legitimate, that you can bank your life on this. And I, when I'm preaching, I say this a lot. I try to make this argument because we have to have some proof that we can cast ourselves into this and it's going to be worth it. So do we have a guarantee that this is all real? So I've been holding my cards close to my chest, okay? I've been saying these are angelic beings and, the, and most of them are. But the first one that Daniel meets in verses five and six uh, I don't think is a mere angelic being. I think this is what theologians call a theophany, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in human history, there, here, in the flesh, in this vision with Daniel. And so look what it says in verses 5 and 6. It says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, 
a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Now, Daniel, Daniel, I don't think, knew that this would be the second person of the Trinity, but what we, we're in this privileged point in history where we have the fullness of the Scripture and we can use what we see elsewhere in the Bible to discern who this figure is. And so look what it says in Revelation chapter 1. This is who John sees in a similar vision. And I want you to notice the parallels. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and wearing a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of many waters. There's too many touching points and similarities between these two visions, these two figures to say, this isn't the same person. This is God the Son. It seems like who Daniel and John are seeing in their respective visions is the same majestic, terrifying, glorious person. And just to prove my point even more, uh, just as Daniel, he fell on his face as though dead, that same exact thing happens to John after he sees Jesus in that vision. And just as the other men in Daniel's entourage flee and hide. Remember the Apostle Paul on the way to Damascus? He sees Jesus in a vision, but no one else with him can see, but they know, and they fall and flee. It's like these same sort of things happen every time a person sees Jesus in a vision. So what we're dealing with here, who we're meeting here, is God the Son. Now, how does this encourage us? How is this the guarantee that God's power is certainly for the weak and it will do a transformative work in us? Here is God the Son in all of his splendor and in all of his power. How does this encourage us? Think about this. It's because of this. God the Son, he gives up his splendor and he gives up his majesty. He leaves it, he, he leaves it behind in glory to come and embrace our weaknesses and enter into our human limitations. And not only that, but he is crushed by our guilt. He dies our death. Also that what? He could give to us his splendor. He could give to us his majesty. He could give to us his righteousness. Think about this. Daniel, slain, dead, down to zero, raised up to 100. He is figuratively dies and resurrected. That's what Jesus does for us. He invites us into his resurrection power. He enters into our weaknesses, dies in our place, so that he can do what? He can give us his resurrection. He can give us his splendor and us our majesty. And so literally, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead raises us from spiritual death and will continue to do so all of our days until we are physically raised from the dead in glory. This is the guarantee that this is real, that you can cast your life into this reality and you will not regret it because Jesus entered into it and he invites us to follow him into it. He is like the type, the model of this, and we know it's real. And so we, the weak, 
we receive God's power, and we're transformed one degree of glory at a time after the pattern of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. So that's personal. I hope, I hope there's a, a fire lighted underneath you right now that says, yes, I want to admit my weaknesses, confess my sin, own up to the reality that I need God's help, and then follow him and abide in him and see what happens. I hope you feel that. But I also want to make this even bigger. Um, this is more, God's power is more than just a personal experience. It is that, but it's not that only. God's power is a greater reality, a greater movement that is even beyond us that he is inviting us to partner with him in. So last point, the partnership with God's power. To see this, we're going to look at the, um, look the, some things that these angels here say in this passage. We get a peek behind, the. this is pretty cool, we get a peek behind the veil uh, of, into the unseen realm into the spiritual realm. And when we do that, we see God's power moving and advancing, but also how we partner with him in that. All right. So let me first highlight what these angels and then also demons are battling over. Okay. You've seen that in this passage. Let me go ahead and highlight it for you. It says in verse 13 that a demon called the prince of Persia opposed this angel who Daniel's talking to, uh, the second angel, not God the Son. So there's a second and third angel. So uh, this demon, the prince of Persia, opposes the third angel and the angel Michael as they were making their way to the kings of Persia to influence them so that Daniel's prayer might be answered. It says in verse 13, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So kind of what we're supposed to see is that in the spiritual realm around where the king of the kings of Persia are making their judgments and decrees is the prince of Persia, this demon, and then the angel sent by God. And they're both there waging war against one another to influence the outcome of, of what the kings are going to decide to do with this situation. And then later on in verse 20, it says this, uh, but now I will, this is the angel talking to Daniel, I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So what he's saying here is, I'm going to return now to, to battle that out in the unseen realm so that I can influence the king of Persia, the kings of Persia to make the right decrees and answer your prayers, Daniel. Uh, but later on, even in the future, when Greece comes and invades, I'll be doing it then too. This battle will rage in the unseen realm to have influence over kings and kingdoms. And just one more piece of this, 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1 says this, uh, this closing thought, this closing uh, statement that the angel makes to Daniel and says, and as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, who is the same person as Cyrus, he says, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So what we, what we see is that initial decree of Cyrus to release all the exiles back to Jerusalem in answer to Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, that happened how? Through this angel influencing the king of Persia, Cyrus or Darius here, to make that decree. Pretty interesting stuff. Okay, we get a peek behind the unseen realm to see the activity that's going on. There, there's this structured and tactical uh, battle between good and evil, kings and kingdoms influenced for good or for evil. That's what's happening in the unseen realm this whole time. But what's Daniel doing? We know. I've already said it a number of times. Daniel is praying. 
He's fasting and mourning and praying and asking God that the opposition that, that his people are experiencing in Jerusalem would come to an end and God would bring about the fulfillment of his, of his promises. Daniel is praying and literally influencing what's happening in the spiritual realm through his prayer. Now, you might say to me, okay, this is a fair question. You might say, so wait, is God just kind of like sitting around waiting for us to say something or he's not going to move? He's not going to do what he wants? I don't think so. Because in verse 21, it says this, uh, the angel tells Daniel, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth, which is all of chapter 11. This future prophecy play by play of what's going to happen in the next several hundred years for the Jewish people. And he uses this phrase, the book of truth, which is this, I think, metaphorical way to say God has history planned out. God has authored what's going to come about. And so this is great mystery. How do our prayers, we hit our knees in prayer, ask God to move and work for his glory according to his purposes. How does that work with the fact and the reality that God already has the book of truth written? History already laid out. How does it work? I don't know. It's a, it's a great mystery, but we're not told the answer because we don't need to worry about it. What we're told is, though, in some way, in some way, our prayers, the prayers of the saints, play a meaningful part in the outworkings of kings and kingdoms, movements towards good, movements towards injustice. We are invited to partner with God in the advancement of his kingdom that's even starting in the unseen realm. You see that? That's pretty significant. I just wonder, I wonder what would happen if we as a people ceased fighting about political issues and ceased fighting and bickering on social media and instead fought on our knees and prayed. I think we think prayer is something we do just before church or before we do something in ministry, but then like the real ministry begins and we serve or we preach or we share the gospel. No, 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 no. Prayer is the ministry. Prayer is the most significant thing we as weak people can do. Calling upon Jesus to advance his kingdom for his glory according to his purposes, and he, will, he answers that prayer because he wants to. That's his will. And so we're invited to enter into this mystery and partner with God in the advancement of what he is doing. Ephesians six twelve says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh, and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. So we shouldn't be superstitious. <laughs> Maybe a little stitious. Just kidding. Office quote. Uh, we shouldn't be superstitious and think that like the devil's lurking behind every single thing. Sometimes in pastoral ministry, I talk to guys who are caught up in sin or caught up in addiction. They say, oh, the devil's getting me. I'm like, no, you're getting you. This is your fault. You're responsible for this. But there is this great reality that we're called to enter into, to pray, to partner with God and what he is doing in the world, not just at our personal level, but a global kingdom level. So listen, I think, I was thinking like, how do I close the sermon out? And it just popped in my head, I think, as I was just thinking here a minute ago. The rise of Christianity, 
Like the reason why Christian faith just took off like a forest fire, do you know why that happened in the, few, the next few centuries after Jesus? It's because the people no one wanted, the people who were overlooked, were given a new significance and a new purpose that had never existed. Women, the poor, uh, the people not in power were given a new kind of power. It was wildly attractive. And that's what Jesus is offering to us. We here, <laughs> each and every one of us, if we're honest, we're not impressive. We're nobodies. And God loves to, to be with nobodies and enter into a relationship with nobodies, and then transform nobodies into somebodies for His glory, and then use them to be part of His cosmic mission, what He's up to in the world. Pretty amazing. That is for you, and that is for me, a new significance, something very meaningful for us to live according to. And so, the nature of God's power, it transforms. It's for the weak, it's guaranteed in Jesus, and now we're invited to partner with, with him and what he's doing in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. It helps us so much, and we need it. And Lord, we're thankful for Christ, who left the glory of heaven to come and enter into our weaknesses, take our sin and our guilt and our punishment upon himself, so that he could impute to us his majesty and splendor and righteousness. God, that's who we are now. That is our identity. And I pray that we would live according to it. In your name we pray. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.